Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Among the topics that Arthur Schopenhauer is going to consider in part three of his On the Basis of Morality, specifically in the chapter number 17 on the virtue of justice, is the conception of duty, Pflicht in German, something that has a very wide scope in a number of moral or ethical systems, but which Schopenhauer thinks has been misunderstood and in effect misused, in particular by Immanuel Kant. And so he'll talk at the beginning about the separation between so-called duties of law and duties of virtue, more correctly between justice and philanthropy, which was affected by Kant in so forced and unnatural a manner. And then he'll talk a little bit later about duties of law, duties of virtue, the latter also called duties of love or imperfect duties. And he says, this is really not the best way to make sense out of ethics or morality. This is a mistaken use of the term or the concept of duty. And instead for justice and philanthropy or loving kindness, instead of talking about duties, we should talk instead of virtues understood in a sort of architectonic overarching sense. For Schopenhauer, there are two fundamental virtues, two cardinal virtues, as he's going to call them, justice and philanthropy or loving kindness. But he also also says that these terms are in the first place at fault. Why? Because they coordinate the genus with the species. What, what does that mean? So genus, species, these are ways of classifying things. And the species is below the genus, you could say. You might also call the genus something that is wider, more abstract, encompasses more. So the species is something that fits into the genus, for, sort of like human being and animal, right? Human beings are animals. Not all animals are human beings. We can say similar things with these duties. And he says, justice is also a virtue. And then he says, underlying these terms is the too, the much too wide extension of the concept duty, which I will reduce to its proper limits. So Schopenhauer's conception of duty in his view, rightly understood, is going to be a lot narrower than what other people make of that concept, of that term. And so when we get to that discussion, he begins by saying, this is the place, since, you know, we're trying to determine the concept of obligation, to determine that of duty which is so frequently applied in ethics as well as in real life, and yet which is given to great an extension. What is too great an extension? It means that it is used to talk about, to apply to far too many things. We should more narrowly circumscribe or limit this, this conception. And he says that, how can we do this? Well, we found that wrong always consists in injury to another, whether to this person's 
freedom, property, honor, or their person itself. From this, it seems to follow every wrong must be a positive attack or a deed. Okay, so, so far, so good. Now we're going to add something to the picture, which is going to help us see what duty is. He tells us that there are actions whose mere omission, the failure to do them, leaving them out, is a wrong. And those are what we call duties. So the things that we ought to do in relation to others, those are duties because we can't not do them without doing wrong to that person in some way. So he says, this is the true philosophical definition of the concept of duty, which, however, is deprived of every characteristic and thereby lost when, as in all previous morality, every mode of praiseworthy conduct is called duty. And thus it is forgotten that what is duty must also be indebtedness. So by Talking about duties in a very broad scope and calling anything good that we would do a duty or a requirement, or there's a lot of other words for this, and he, he actually brings them up here. Duty, to deon in Greek, le devoir in French, plict in German. We could also talk about the Latin officium. We could talk about the stoic conceptions of appropriate acts, also translated as duty to kathekonton, right? There's a lot of language available for this. Schopenhauer is saying it's been applied to far too much. We need to narrow it in on exactly this. Actions by the mere omission of which injury is done to another. What we ought to do so that others are not thereby, through our failure to do it, harmed. So he says, this tells us another important feature of this. Obviously, this can only be the case if the person who neglects to do such an action has undertaken to carry it out. In other words, has bound or pledged himself. So this is another important characteristic, right? You could say that with every duty that we have, there's some sort of agreement that was made, some sort of saying, I will do this. I pledge myself, promise myself, I'm bound to do this, I, I bind myself, I've undertaken it, I've said, yes, I will do this sort of thing. And so we can see how duties are created. If somebody comes to me and says, to use the old example, going all the way back to antiquity, here is some money, I want you to hold on to this for me, keep it safe in your house, and when I return, please give me my money back. And I say, I will do that. I have now created a duty with respect to me in relation to that person, perhaps a friend, perhaps a neighbor, perhaps a relative, to do that particular action. If he comes back and I say, well, I didn't know that you were going to come back, and so I spent it on magical beans, or I gambled it away, or I bought myself a new house, or something like that. Or even if I do something like, well, you know, my children needed medical care, the money was just sitting there, I spent it on doctors. I violated my duty, my obligation to that person that I've committed to do. And Schopenhauer thinks that this is at the core of most of our duties. He says, as a rule, this is an express 
and mutual agreement. So he's going to give a bunch of interesting examples of this, and we'll look at those in just a moment. The other thing that he says that's particularly important to pay close attention to, because it might be a little misleading depending on what else you have read or thought about when it comes to duties, it says every duty confers a right. Now we ought to think about who is this right conferred upon? And the natural way of reading this, I think, for many people, especially since in ethics textbooks or, you know, in a, a lot of other discussions, we say every duty corresponds to a right. You know, you can think about, for example, John Stuart Mill and his discussion of rights in utilitarianism and in on liberty. This is kind of an assumed thing that if I have a duty towards you, you have a right to the fulfillment of whatever that duty is, right? A duty on on my part corresponds to a right on your part. And that's correct, but that's not what Schopenhauer is actually referencing here. He's saying that by undertaking, by engaging in this performance of binding myself to an obligation to you, I also have a right that arises from that. And so there's a kind of reciprocity going on there. Why do I undertake a duty in order to get something on my part? I don't just impose duties on myself for the sheer fun of it, right? Society may tell us that all sorts of things are duties that aren't really duties because we didn't enter into a kind of agreement and we didn't get a right conferred on us as a result says no one can undertake an obligation without a motive, which here means without some advantage to himself. And he is going to talk about an exception to this. We might think about whether there's other exceptions, but first let's look at the examples that he gives. I think this is quite helpful. Prince and people. That's a very interesting one, isn't it? He's talking about political authority and those who are subject to the political authority. The subjects have a duty to the ruler, the princeps, which is what prince means, right? The one who is in charge, but they have that because the ruler is supposed to be correspondingly in some sort of reciprocity doing something for them, protecting them perhaps, ensuring the orderly conduct of governmental functions, who knows what it's going to be, building roads, whatever, right? The next one, government and civil servants. This is very interesting as well, right? Because we see, and it's not just in Western Europe and, and Central Europe, of course, we see this also in, in China and many other civilizations. There are a bunch of people who do certain jobs. They're functionaries. They work for whoever happens to be in charge. The actual government are the ones who are, you know, ruling. And then the civil servants make sure that that actually happens. And this could be people working at the Department of Motor Vehicles. This could be teachers who are employed by the state in some way. It could be a local government. It could be the national government. It could be all sorts of things. We get to more personal relationships, talking about master and servant. A servant is not necessarily a slave, but somebody who belongs to a household and works for that household and is governed or ruled or directed by the person who is in charge. Schopenhauer is saying that the servant has duties to the master, 
but they have those duties because they're getting something out of it. It's not just, well, you took me in war and you let me live, so you get to boss me around and do whatever the hell you want. There's not duties arising from that sort of thing. Then he brings up two very important professions within a lot of different societies, one of which is, this is translated here, counsel, meaning lawyer, the one who works for you and advises you, helps you out, and client. And we might extend this to all sorts of other professions, your financial planner, your life coach, whoever it is that is providing you with some guidance, you should follow their guidance. But... You should do that if it's going to turn out well for you. You have the obligation balanced by your rights in relation to them. Physician and patient, one that goes back to antiquity. The very existence of the Hippocratic Oath, which by the way, is not the guiding thing from like say the 20th century onward for most medical staff. There's all sorts of other oaths and pledges and things out there, but the idea of there being this structure in which the physician has certain duties, the patient also has certain duties, they are in relation to each other. And then he, he generalizes even further. So we can think about economic exchanges, an employer and whoever undertakes to do something, right? He says, employer in the broadest sense of the word and everyone who has undertaken to carry out any kind of task. This also confers rights as well as duties. You take on the duties in order to get something. So this is a very interesting feature of Schopenhauer's understanding of duty. As I mentioned, there's one exception to this that he thinks is legitimate. There's other things too that he says, eh, you could call those exceptions, but I'm not actually gonna consider those duty creation, right? What's the exception? It's a different role relationship, parents to children. He says, only one obligation is known to me, which is undertaken not by means of an agreement, but immediately through a mere act, since the person with whom it was concerned was not yet in existence when it was undertaken. Okay, well, that's the act of, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, getting it on and generating a child, right? When you generate a child, you now have obligations to that child. You have duties to that child. And what is the primary duty that he talks about? Whoever brings a child into the world has a duty to support it until it is capable of supporting itself. And should this time never come, for example, in the case of one who's born blind, one who is handicapped, one who's you know lacking the mental faculties, and so on, then the duty also never comes to an end. He goes on to say, for by the mere non-provision of assistance, that is through an omission, he would injure the child. And he's not specifying, does this just mean food and water and shelter and clothing? No, he's not saying anything like that. It might include you know, providing an education. It might include providing a supportive and loving environment. It might include all sorts of things that the parent is supposed to provide. And this all falls within this duty to support until a time of independence. Now, it's interesting to see that he says there's no agreement here, and yet the child also has a duty. So he says parents must also have a right as regards their children. 
And what is this? The basis of the children's duty of obedience to their parents. But later this duty also ceases. So, you know, until you're 18 or whatever the age is going to be established, the parents have a duty to support, the children have a duty to obey. And that ends once the situation changes. And here he examines something else. He says, all right, so obedience doesn't have to be there anymore. What should it be replaced by? He says, gratitude. Now, is there a duty to gratitude? Good question. He goes on and he says, in its place will appear gratitude. Now, gratitude for what? Does every parent deserve gratitude? No. Because gratitude is given, as he says, for what the parents did over and above their strict duty. So if your parents, for example, have a duty to clothe you and they get you, you know, uh, burlap bags and sew them into a uniform that you wear every day, they've satisfied that duty on a minimal level. The fact that all the other kids at school make fun of you and they're like, look at Johnny Sack shirt and stuff like that. Oh, you know, they've at least satisfied the minimum requirement. Now, if your parents go and make you nice clothes or make the clothes fit well, or, you know, make sure that you just, you don't just live on hand-me-downs or something like that. I'm thinking, for example, about my mother who used to sew us clothes, as did many people in that generation, particularly those from the lower to, to middle class at that time. You know, she really took good care of that aspect of things. I should feel gratitude for that, right? Because she went over and above the minimum requirement. So gratitude is for showing benevolence, you could say. And he says, however an unpleasant and even revolting of vice in gratitude may be, gratitude cannot really be called a duty. Why not? Well, because by not giving somebody gratitude, by not showing gratitude to them, you're not harming them. You're just not giving them something extra. He says that it's a mission causes no harm to another, hence is not a wrong. Moreover, the benefactor, the one who's doing the good thing, would inevitably be under the impression he was tacitly striking a bargain. So gratitude can't be a requirement. It can't be an obligation. It is something that's good to do, good to display, good to have, but there's no actual duty there. He does finish up by talking about reparation for harm, fixing things after you've screwed them up. And he says, reparation for harm done could be regarded as an obligation arising directly out of an action. And then he says, not really, though. As the elimination of the consequences of an unjust action, this reparation is a mere attempt to efface it, something purely negative, resting on the fact the action itself ought not to have taken place. So there isn't a duty on Schopenhauer's part or in his mind of reparation itself. It is a good thing to do, of course, or it's undoing a bad, you could say, right? but it's not a moral obligation. It's not a duty. And then he also talks about equity, you know, as, as something that we don't need to take into account either. So this gives us a, a solid sense of what Schopenhauer means by this rather more restricted and in his view, philosophically correct conception of duty, or in this case, moral obligation to not fail to do actions, the omission of which would cause a harm or wrong to somebody else.
Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works. <laughs>